My name is Wonder Lucas, and I'd like to say hello <laughs> to a lot of soup. What's up, Jake? Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're back Sugar Hill Kang is going to come in here <laughs> and just shove a cease and desist in our fucking ass. It's okay, they didn't spend their money correctly. They couldn't have. They're no, Sugar Hill Gang. And we currently don't hear of them. <laughs> anyway, yeah, this is Hatch History. We're not a music podcast, even though sometimes we definitely Tonto, have to talk about jump it. Jump on it. Jump on it. That's also <laughs> That's slightly racist, alright. I was doing the song, man. Oh shit, sorry. I was just doing the song. That happens in the song. Oh yeah, that's right. Okay, anyway. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're talking about Richard Nixon again. Yeah. Uh, part, part, part four? Part four. I part think. four. I misnumbered it in my notes, by the way. So I didn't even take part one as the like original episode where we all oh, just so talked about it. We're, we're doing media. great. I got it. I, this, literally, okay, this... If, if I'm sure Luke is this, and those of you at home, I may, I literally may need to take a picture. You're gonna show me a visual medium during a podcast. No, no, no. I'm going to show you it on the website of my notebook, which is literally like notes with sticky notes with smaller page notes taped to the page with about like a, in a couple of areas because like some sources like lacked out and I had to go in and find other stuff. Oh yeah. With like four or five notebook pages Jeez. stapled together is an interim so. It looks like a hot mess, but it'll work. <laughs> I also love how we're recording this in a room where the only light we have is just red light, so which is in the depths of hell right now. <laughs> it's pretty much in the depths of hell. I love it though. It's it's, it's a good vibe. This is it's either depths of hell or it's like red light district in Amsterdam, which I'm not okay with either prospect. So, so. From inside Satan's asshole, we began Richard yeah. Nixon Part 4. Yeah, Richard so, Nixon Part uh, 4. So just a quick recap. Uh, if you haven't listened to the other episodes, please do. Uh, and this is a good time for me to do my little uh, little spiel that I forgot to do. Uh, so go ahead and uh, you, obviously if you're listening to us, you found us. That's probably not an issue. Yeah. Uh, we're on most major podcast outlets. So, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, all those other fun places. So. <laughs> We're on uh, pretty much every major podcast that you can think of. Uh, if you want to follow our social media, you can follow us at Hacked History on Facebook and Hacked underscore History on the gram. Oh, the uh, <laughs> uh, and then uh, <laughs> if you want to email us, you can email us at HackedHistory101 at gmail.com. Uh, but if you haven't listened to parts one, two, and three, we highly recommend it. You might be a little confused otherwise. Uh, we're going to yeah. pick it up. Uh, we kind of told the official story, but now we're going to kind of take a we're going to take a step back. and We're, we're going to take a step gonna, back to the beginning in 1972. Peel, we're going to peel back the curtain and kind of understand, uh, so we can kind of explain how these revelations came out. We're going to yep. talk about, pretty much, if I guess if you, if you hate us, you can just go watch the movie. Uh, hey, if you want to go watch the movie, I have watched the movie All the President's Men. It is a pretty good movie. I wouldn't say phenomenal. That, that, that was the major source for this section, right? It was All the President's yeah, Men. Yeah, I had the book. It actually was, oddly enough, fun story behind that book was my aunt. Uh, she was alive and I think in high school or at the very least in the first year of college in 1972. And when it came out in 75, I think the book did, or maybe it was 74, she was like, there are notes in there from her like political science class that they were literally had like a one, they had a class in Madison, political science class in Madison, totally dedicated to Watergate, which would have been wow. fucking awesome. That would have been amazing. But no, I had to learn about public policy. Because fuck me, I guess. <laughs> hey, public policy is important to me. It fair. is. It is. But anyway, uh, is. <laughs> aside from all that, yeah. let's uh, let's dive back in. Let's yeah. talk about uh, Woodbomb and Burn. 
Captain. <laughs> I would smack the fuck out of you so hard. I I have written their names so much. I may or may not be able to do it. No, in I know it's Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Gosh. Yeah, or or their moniker, which was combined together when they would write stories that they didn't want to be identified. What as. was the moniker? His, his Woodstein. Woodstein, <laughs> which huh? is just like the most Jewish name. No offense, but it really is. Like I assume in my in my addled Midwestern uncultured mind that the word Woodstein should be in front of like a law firm. Or a banking institution. <laughs> We're just going to slide right on past that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying it had to be Jewish, but I'm saying, hey, that would, like, you know, Well, it's, it's, a, it's a stereotypically sounding name. I get it. Yeah. It's kind of like the last name O'Brien. You know, oh, it's an Irish last name. Yeah, you know? usually yeah. when you hear O'Brien or O anything, it's usually in, like, a law firm group. Well, like, Shaughnessy. O'Shaughnessy? <laughs> oh. Or, uh, or Matthews, Matthews and O'Connor or something. But anyway, we're getting off track. Matthew McConaughey. Hey, I'm gonna buy yourself a Lincoln. What I'm gonna do is I was a lawyer in the Lincoln lawyer. So when I when I that's I, a movie I need to I'm, watch. Yet. When I'm sitting out here driving this car, right, and I I make some turns, it makes me want to think about the turns the law has been taking. I can't you, wait you to wanna... hear the guys in the comment section telling us where the fucking timestamp is to where we start. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about Lincolns. <laughs> No, so uh, show. <laughs> anyway, so uh, what I'm gonna do and what I derived in my mind is that yes, the the book All the President's Men is our sort of our main source for this, primarily because this was written by Woodward and Bernstein, and it was sort of their recount of what they did. So I also combine that a little bit with the framework from the Washington Post website, sort of detailing it. So that it wasn't just a hodgepodge mess of facts that people would have a hard time together. Now, you've also done research on deep throwing, is that correct? Yes, I did. <laughs> and we will go into that later. But no, 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 we won't. No, we will not. <laughs> and I love that I have to come clean with the fact that I heard you said deep throat, and I thought the guy, and I said, yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> and it only occurred to me you were talking about the sex acts. I was making an innuendo, because we will mention Deep Throat in here, but we're not talking about the sexual Oh, acts. yeah. We will initiate sounds of it, uh, and that'll be an ASMR nightmare for some of you. I'm not doing that. I mean, you know what? I run alone. I'm a twister, and I was born to walk alone. You're a lone wolf. What is that movie? <laughs> anyway. What movie? Never mind. You mean Hangover, where uh, he talks about being a lone wolf? Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. That's what I was trying to reference. You got it. <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, yeah, uh, where to the research leads us, it might still get a little confusing. So, there will be times, for sure, when Lucas is probably going to ask me, because I'm the one talking about it, as to, hey, what the fuck are you talking about? And well, we'll have to go back. I do that for the benefit of myself and for the audience to make sure yeah. we're on the same page. Not that I'm trying to, like, like make it confusing. I really try to make this as simple as possible. Dude, you got a lot of shit, like, to cover, so, like, I'm yeah. not... <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on. It's not just you. You'd be surprised when it comes down to this story. Anything you see from the headlines, that's about a fraction, maybe a quarter of what actually happened, and all the whack ass stories that happened. Like there are some real bangers here. So we're all gonna right, start let's, just let's jump in. Let's just start from the beginning. All right. I like it's basically sort of like a part one and a part two because this is gonna basically cover all the way up to where we left off in the last episode, which is just before. The president's impeachment. So what you say is this might be a two-part episode. No, no, no. This should <laughs> no? try to be one okay. part. This should try to be one part. So we're starting basically from the beginning. Uh, actually, just like right after. The day after, actually, the fucking um, the break-in. 
So, as we talked about in the last episode, obviously there was a break in the Watergate building. The guys were obviously arrested because I think the pack of them were just dumb and fucked. But we've discussed how dumb they were. We... Oh, no. We will also discuss how dumb they are in this one. And, oh, and in general, how dumb, like, the Nixon White House it. is when it comes okay. to it. But, uh, basically, on the 18th, on Sunday, June 18th, 1972, the headline for the Washington Post read, quote, Five held in plot to bug Democratic offices in Washington, D.C., the story basically read that five men had been arrested amid a burglary inside the offices of the DNC in the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. Uh, basically, I'm sort of like rephrasing. This is sort of where we're going to just be our jumping off point. So at this point in time, the botched burglary came immediately to the attention of two young reporters tracking the Washington Post, and their names are Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Both of them at this point in time were fairly sort of not veteran reporters totally, but they were definitely known. They had done stories before. They had done political stories. They, they had, had done all the obligatory cat pieces. Pretty much. <laughs> At this point in time, they had literally done the, like, cat pieces where all of a sudden, like, the editor goes and goes, The mayor's up my ass! And whatever. Like, basically, it's like that. Yeah, I like to imagine just, like, the, uh, the, uh, newspaper editor from Spider-Man. Like, <laughs> give me pictures of Spider-Man! Give me pictures of Spider-Man! <laughs> yeah. Basically. So, if you think about it like that character, then, yeah, it's kind of like that. So, basically, within the first two weeks of those arrests and the break-in, uh, Woodward started to, or went to attend the trial of the five guys that were held up in that. So and five guys not being the burger restaurant. No, not the burger restaurant, but they may go on to create five guys. Anyway, um... <laughs> that, that would be the best origin story for five guys. <laughs> it was the, the five, five burglars from the Watergate. Who broke into the Watergate hotel. And just... one of the guys was, when I went back to Miami, I decided to open a burger restaurant. And I thought, you know what? Who better than the people who fucked up the last thing I was involved in? <laughs> <laughs> Those fuckers owed me. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they all had the pack. They said, no, you're the one who did it wrong. And, and I thought, you, that's why we throw peanut shells on the floor. Pretty much. <laughs> anyway, that's this moment of life when I was up there. Well, you, said, you said five guys, and I had, I had to. <laughs> oh, um, anyway. So it was those, the five men who were arrested were uh, Barker, Gonzalez, Martinez, McCord Jr., and Sturgis. Those were the five guys. <laughs> God damn it. Those are the five men <laughs> immediately arrested <laughs> by the by the bum squad at, in the Watergate complex. Fuck yeah. The, as you'll as you'll know, as we talked about, if you remember from the last episode that we talked about, there were two other guys involved in that process who were uh, both blind as fuck. Before they would be fans. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and they won't factor in until a little bit later. But at this point in time, it's just those five individuals. So at the um, yes, <laughs> at at the original initial trial there, Woodward basically sort of sat in on the initial hearing for the burglary because that's basically what this was. It was in a precinct or district court in Washington D.C. It was small scale. This was like a, the kind of court where, if you think about justice on like a day to day schedule, this is the kind of place where like pimps would come through, drunkards would come through, like sure, big drug sure. stuff, little shit that basically. You would be given about maybe 15 minutes max sort of trial. They would not even talk about the case in full. They would just throw the details, and then you would either plead guilty or innocent, and then, you know, they'd figure something out. <clears throat> so it's kind of like Judge Judy? Pretty much. It's or, basically a circuit court. Or, or not a circuit court. Or, or the people's court. Da, 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 da. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So um, the duration of that hearing, Woodward kind of shadowed the lawyers <clears throat> for those guys. And it was Joseph Rafferty Jr., which I can only think of John Rafferty, 
Or, or not, I'm thinking, like, I'm mixing that with John Fogarty. <laughs> so I'm thinking of Joseph Rafferty, he's like a weird cousin to John. Some folks are born. Little bit Lady Hitchhiker. God damn it. And it was Douglas Caddy. Uh, Woodward was able to corner Rafferty, sort of, and get some information out of him, basically saying that it was the names and addresses of the five men, because that was all court material. You couldn't get that as people in the Washington Post right. until it came out in public right. knowledge. But yeah. because they were kind of like the investigative reporters, and this was definitely sort of the golden age of investigative reporting, or this would lead to the golden age of investigative reporting, you... That's kind this of a, is back when people still trusted the media. Pretty much, I still trust the media too. Oh, I do too. I trust a I'm, lot. I just don't trust CNN as much. See, what I'm doing is I'm yeah. just saying overall. There's oh no, overall. Trust the this media is basically right when we both trusted the media and still had a fairly healthy trust, with a slight distrust in the government. So, well, and, and that was fair because you know at this point in time we were already dealing with what Johnson had done lying to the people about Vietnam. And then, yeah, Watergate didn't really make it much Well, better. Watergate is the is the big kicker for a lot of government distrust and conspiracy theories. Yeah. And just and especially negative government thought comes yeah. out of this, which is why we're talking about it, which is why we spent now this is episode we're currently on the eve shit. of a presidential election to decide the fate of this country. We, You know, we uh we didn't really plan to write it, we have read to the election, but it kind of is perfect, isn't it's it? It's happening at this point. It's kind of perfect, isn't it? Yeah. So, anyway. basically, yeah. It, and... I, we could talk about Iran Contra when we get to the sort of like Cold War uh, series that we're planning on doing, which I have a badass story to tell us about. If I can get enough information about the time that Pepsi decided to accept payment from the Soviet Union and decommission warships <laughs> and submarines, they had the seventh, I think they had the sixteenth largest navy in the world for a short while. Pepsi. Yeah, Pepsi. This is a fucking amazing story. Isn't that? Just... And Richard Nixon's involved in that one too. Isn't, isn't that just the dream? Corporations fighting out all their Basically, this is like a fucking yeah, like, dystopian yeah. sci-fi novel that Apple I read in college. Pepsi and Amazon just. Jeff Bezos is dressed in like the attire of some sort of like Mad Max Road Warrior character. Yeah, but then you have Elon Musk dressed in some weird futuristic like space suit, but like Elon Musk is like, like the crash cutout. <laughs> Elon Musk. Musk Elon Musk tries to makes me think of there was a like a dystopian future where he was like a corporation guy. He's the dude who would be like, I'm gonna create my own self-driving rocket, and then literally on the stage, it's like showing it to the people, he blow up. Like that's literally See, what this would be. He's smart enough to back it up, though. Pretty like, much. So anyway, back to back to 1972 because we're getting way too far ahead of our bullshit. Uh, Woodward wasn't able to get any information from the other lawyer, which was Caddy, because obviously Caddy knew how to keep his fucking mouth shut. Basically saying like, don't take it personally. And this is literally from the book. Quote: Don't take it personally. I'm just not going to talk. Like, he would just kind of shut him down. And that's is probably, a reporter. Honestly, that's probably the thing you should do as a lawyer. Oh, dude, you're going to see in this episode so many people just decided to open their fucking mouths, probably when they should, which is good. But at the same time, logic defies. If you're in this situation, you fucking shut the hell up. Well, if, if you're if you're a lawyer, like, you yeah. definitely should not be speaking about oh, the case dude, outside so of the So many court. lawyers are going to get upset with this fucking story. <laughs> dude, their own lawyers in the story get upset, but that's that's a little bit later. So Caddy was basically a dead end. Woodward went back into the courtroom because that had been about that had been about around recess, just before the guys came in. All right, so we're still at that initial court here. Court here, yeah. This is we're still with, in the initial with court. Five guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, the five guys. Yeah. We're we're 
Uh, is it true or untrue, sir, that your your burgers are the best in the Tri County area? Usually bad. It's now I want Five Guys. You know we don't have that in this. <laughs> I know. We yeah. are currently we're worse than Detroit. Appleton has a Five Guys. Oh, fuck you, Appleton. Anyway, she fucks. They have a Chick Fil A too. Yeah. And a Popeyes now. Fuck. All right. Anyway, they got all the good shit. God damn it. We're gonna have to make a drive down there one day. We're gonna. Yeah. We could be drunk as hell, drive all the way to Appleton for Popeyes. Okay. Not not drunk as hell. Well, not drunk as hell. Get uh, under the concept of being drunk as hell, sober up, and drive to Appleton for Popeyes. Yeah, do yeah, not drive drunk. drunk no, drive no, no, no. We do not advocate that. We, Correct. Unlike some podcasts who decide to be satirical. Anyway, <laughs> um, so Caddy, uh, yeah, he talked to Caddy. That didn't work. He went back in the courtroom, and the guys were coming in basically under martial guard because this was kind of a big deal, given the fact it was a political organization headquarters. And they were basically put before Judge James Belson. So Belson... There's not a lot of information. Dog. Yeah. Pretty much. Belson was pretty much just sort of like your typical, like, oh, let's get this fucking over with and move on to the next yeah, case. He's Judge of. Judy. Pretty much. But <laughs> That's what Judge Judy he had some show. He had some candidacy. All right. But uh, that being said, he they were sitting before the court here. Again, Woodward just was kind of listening to the judge ask the guys, like, who were the people you were answering to? Because you, you guys are all a part of some sort of government group that yeah. you alluded to. And each and every guy, he said, almost in like a murmuring tone. As Woodward had to literally lean in to hear it, each of the guys told the judge, the CIA, the CIA, the CIA, over like through each and every one of them was connected. Literally, and quoting in the book, that Woodward literally just said, holy shit, out loud in the courtroom, to where people actually noticed him. <laughs> and Michael Jackson was also in that audience, and that's where he got the inspiration to write his hit song, ABC. One, two, three. <laughs> Except by that point in time, yeah, you're right. Anyway, um, <laughs> so basically Woodward just like literally like hustled out of there. He didn't even see the end of it. He's like, oh shit, these guys are part of the CIA. So he, <laughs> he's like, oh god, oh no, I gotta go to the top. <laughs> he's basically, he's just I, I am, I may be broken as a human being after this episode airs because I'm like, I'm literally like, where's the money go? <laughs> so anyway, so he, uh, he realizes some shit is probably going on here. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so Woodward basically, with that information in hand, hustled back. From the courtroom and went back to the Washington Post office. Right. He turned his findings into the Post. Back man. to editor Spider-Man. Yeah, but no, not exactly. So he took findings in. He Jesus Christ, you fucked me up. He turned I, his I'm findings. I'm trying to ask questions. I, I, know, I, I know, I know. I'm trying to be involved. No, no, you. That's good. That's good. Just like I kept. <laughs> I, I read it and then all of the words just like fucked. I'm sorry. So anyway, he would return his findings into the Post managing editor Howard Simmons. And Simmons kind of plays in a few times in the book, but this is kind of one of the few times I'll mention him because I don't like to throw too many names in. But yeah. again, like the managing editors, there's a there's a hierarchy. It's of the people. guy right below the editor. It basically he starts through all the editor's bullshit, and the editor looks at whatever he gives the editor. Pretty correct? much, like it, it for it, people it's who like another buffer. Yeah, almost. So, and an understanding is this comes from a time frame before the internet, obviously. So there is a bit of a change in how things were done. So for a lot of people listening to this, who can't wrap their head around like who's this managing editor, who's the night editor, who's the who's like the executive publisher and all this stuff. Basically, it's a hierarchy where like Catherine Graham was the owner pretty much of the Washington Post, and then I think it was like what the fuck I don't even have his name. Doesn't you, matter. You know what happened was that once the internet came about and digital news started to be a thing, newspapers lost a lot of money. So they had yeah. to eliminate. They all lost of these a positions. lot of readers because it was a but, little bit harder. And they had to have to eliminate all of these fucking wacky positions. Well, it that... was even wacky. This was necessary because the problem was when you're reporting like this, this was sort of like your multiple safety nets to I keep suppose. like information. You can't just go Google to see if it actually happened. Pretty much. Like off. that was like, like back in this point in time, you literally had to approve it. They literally had to have like a group meeting every time that like Woodward and Bernstein would this is, bring it out. Yeah. And 
this and, is his stories and basically say like, okay, what did you ask him? That doesn't seem to match up. Go back over that source, see what he can tell you, cross reference yeah. it to this, and then they basically would be able to confer. Okay, and by like joint decision, yeah. each and every one of the higher ups will say, go with it. And that then, was what kind of made it a little bit more accurate because they literally would like these were the people who ran it were reporters themselves. They were not office yeah. people. These were people who had literally been in the journalistic group for a long time. Some of them have been on like presidential groups like Kennedy and Johnson and as far back as Eisenhower. So like just it's amazing to me thinking about how much like like not bureaucracy, but how much like mechanics are going on here. Well yeah, and this is uh this is just coming out of typewriters and cigar smoking trench coat wearing reporters. Pretty much. Well, like so. no, it really cigars with cigarettes smoking and it was yeah. like two ply paper and like fucking notepads and dial in phone. It was a it's just a weird world to like, think about just they could get out of this that. much. Like, this done. is where they just started like coming out of that like and adapting yeah. more technology. Because you basically got major computers being a thing in the like mid to late eighties, maybe. Yeah, so we're still in uh oh, actually, very no, the late seventies actually, but really we're still like, in a very different era yeah. of American news at this point. And yeah, that's yeah. that's the that's the important point to point yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um so what else though about Simmons? Oh, uh, no, no. They're basically just saying Simmons was sort of like... Sure, so, they turned, so he turned his shit into Simmons. Yeah, and Simmons... We're talking about the break-in, the evidence, and the possible CIA connection. And basically, Simmons was sort of a cautious guy. So Simmons looked at it, and there was a lot of interest. He said, well, that's, that's a hell of a story. But he basically said, ah, there's a problem here. There's too many holes. We don't have enough right. answers to fill the questions. So Simmons said, basically, sort of was just saying, like, the story about making a deep government connection, Simmons just said that the breaking could be the result of, quote, some crazy Cubans, which sounds racist. Uh, Wait, hold on. I mean, now. It was in the middle of the Cold War. I get it. Okay, not only that, but to be honest, all – if you remember from the last episode, a good majority of the people were Cuban. Yeah. So well, it was a matter of basically saying that – again, and I will I will point this out and I will point it out again, that when that, there were probably some racism. For sure, underlying racism. I think most it's a of little that... bit inherent, but not totally recognized. The problem was is that the Cuban connection that a lot of people would run on initially wasn't exactly totally off left field because the Cuban American population that mostly lived in like the southeast in Florida, yeah, in, in in that area, they were fucking stalwart for the Republican Party, and they usually like Cuban Americans usually agreed that the Democratic Party in the sixties and in the like the early seventies was basically like a communist extension. Right. And they were like, We left Castro. We don't like the Democrats. That was sort of their thinking. But right. yeah. But I also think that part of it like coming out of like the, and this is getting to the later parts of the Cold War. Yeah. I, I think there's a there's actually a chance that he thought somehow there was like Soviet activists that came from Cuba to steal information about the American government. Like, there was some ideal, but like I said, in what they would say is that there was some concept that it may have been some sort of communist arm thing, but the fact was that there wasn't a lot of evidence to support that either. It was sort of like conjecture, basically like saying, well, if yeah. you think about like the batshit ass theories about 9-11, where people were like, well, it maybe it wasn't yeah, that. Yeah, George Bush did it. Well, yeah. George Bush can't fucking touch some shit, so. I, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to be Dick Cheney. And Dick Cheney's just going to be like, yes. Just sitting there eating no a way. small bird. Here's the thing. If Dick Cheney did it, there's no way he would have been able to contain his optimism when it worked out. So we know <laughs> Dick Cheney didn't do it because he would have made it clear that he was responsible. Oh, for sure. For sure. So, uh, well, because, yeah, because Dick Cheney would be doing a fucking jig up on the stage when he's talking about people dying. Um, basically, though, it was the knowledge that these four guys were from Miami – which in this, or the five guys are from Miami. 
Five Guys. That's your phone, right? Yeah, okay. Five Guys. Okay. And Bernstein decided to play, or Bernstein now, we kind of moved to him because Woodward was still working on that with uh, with uh, with Simmons. Was that Bernstein decided to pick up the story from there and placed a call to the Miami Herald and obtained a long list of known Cuban exile leaders, sort of like people in Cuba that had been anti-Castro. And effectively what had happened was they just left Cuba around the Bay of Pigs situation and gone to America. Now, obviously, for what that's worth, you know, that's going to factor in a little bit later, especially when you start thinking about the CIA connection. So, basically, what happened was they, they were still pursuing the thought that this was maybe just some, like, offshoot political, like, not extremist, but sort of like a wacko political, like, operation. Uh, at that same time, another Post reporter was tagging along with the president's press pool in the Key Biscayne to make some checks. So basically what happened, though, is that when Bernstein was placing phone calls out and the Post reporter in, in Key Biscayne was doing the same thing, according in the book All the President's Men, Bernstein's cross-check yielded some interesting leads and information. So there's a couple things here. Number one was this. Mrs. Barker, who was Bernard Barker's wife who lived in Miami, told Bernstein she was not aware of her husband's CIA involvement. Okay. Now, that's weird because in certain... Fishy. Yeah, it's a tad fishy because these people were... You know, being in the CIA usually entails that somebody knows, right? If your wife yeah. doesn't know, that's not entirely weird, but at the same time, it's like, you'd think it would be something you'd want to talk about. It's fishy. Yeah. Number two was this. There was another piece of information that provided a clear picture of what the burglars... Oh, sorry. Of the burglars, and that was that all four Miami suspects are recently connected to anti-Castro activities and were alleged to have CIA connection. So, basically, that was sort of reinforcing what they had said. This was not just them saying, like, oh, I work for the CIA. <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that. Like, there was literally, like, the anti-Castro activities was sort of a big thing. And that's what sent Bernstein personally down to Miami to go look for what was going on. Because, basically, if this was just, like, an offshoot thing and a bunch of guys decided to group together and got fucking hammered one, I said, you know what we should do? We should break into the Watergate building because I know there's something there. It's like that basically is not be like hiding that. something. It gotta be where's the beef? It's not that. Where's the beef? Anyway, that's yeah. an '80s reference, I'm pretty sure. But that's that, a hell of an old reference. Right hell there. yeah, that old lady I think passed away, and I feel bad. But anyway, uh, further investigation into those guys found that one man, Frank Sturgis in particular, was a quote soldier of fortune, basically meaning that Frank was a guy who basically continued being a soldier, continued being an operative, just sort of for glory. <laughs> and okay. money. Uh, yeah, never a good start. That's not good. All right, well, first I want to say rest in peace to the, rest in peace to the where's the beef lady. <laughs> Rip, I, I in, always in our hearts and minds. Well, I mean, seriously, though. Uh, yeah. But uh, moving on, though. I'm um, not joking. So Good. Neither am I. Okay, anyway. But wait, who's this Frank Sturgis guy? Frank Sturgis was one of the guys who was He's picked one of the five up. Guys? Yeah, he was one of the five. He was picked up in the original arrest. Okay. And so he was known too to from certain sources and some calling around. Cause a lot of times, what Woodward and Bernstein and a lot of other post reporters working on Watergate had to do was literally take a source and literally call name after name after name after name after name. It was a tedious job, and that's kind of why shit like this did go on for so long. Was not like with the internet, where some things are fairly easily accessible now. Right. It's like yeah, there there was a lot of work to this. And I will I will if no, jeez, 
I, I will emphasize this multiple times. This is not like, a, oh, there it is, is we're done. No, there was a lot of work that had to be done and a lot of risk that had to be taken, both on the reporters' parts and on, on the parts of a lot of the people working within, like, the president's staff and, the, like, the creep, the committee to re-elect the president. Because I'm a creep. Yep. Okay, like, <laughs> fucking pay him royalties now. All right. <laughs> anyway, um, and basically what, what that extra piece of information was was that Frank had been recruiting other militant Cubans in order to create a team designed to demonstrate at the Democratic National Convention. And this was sort of verified by several local sources in Miami. They basically said, like, he would go around to these places and we'd see him and he'd ask people, hey, do you want to, you know, make some money? Do you want to be politically involved? And he basically, like, proposition people to basically say, like, we're going to fuck with the Democrats. Not totally out there, like, out loud, but he definitely hinted at something. And people would notice that this guy who was there was basically, like, saying, like, I got a job you could do. You know, because certain times, you know, money was tight, especially in the 70s. Sure, especially yeah. when shit got real bad in the Carter administration when the, when the economy fell through. Uh, but basically, a Cuban leader in Miami also informed Bernstein in one of the calls that Sturgis and other, quote, former CIA types intended to use paid provocators to fight anti-war demonstrators in the street during the national political conventions. So that's interesting. Um, That was the first part that kind of tipped me off in reading this. Basically, it was like saying that, like, hey, Sturgis was part of a plan. It seemed like within people that we knew who talked to us, but not to anybody else. Because a lot of times, you know, in these, when it comes to race, a lot of these communities are fairly tight-knit. They don't really True. like to talk outside of their groups because it's about community, but it's also about sort of, like, protecting people they know. Especially in the 70s when shit's bad racially, you know? Um, I mean, shit's still bad racially. Shit's still but... bad, but it was definitely pretty pretty dismal then and so they kind of just like told like yeah he mentioned something about being paid people to go fight anti-war demonstrators which is fucking wild because when people talk about paid protesters that's literally the definition that a republican president did gotta love astroturfing gotta love it oh anyway so both woodward and bernstein continued digging through their connections contacts and found out that a guy called Howard Hunt, a consultant in one of the names found in the burglar's notebook that was found on the burglar, then they are arrested in the fucking I, thing I because they can't get it right. <laughs> I still understand why you'd have the notebook on. I don't know either. Like, what the fuck is happening here? What was the What was the thought process that? Oh man, I don't think there was one. I'm pretty sure it's like, don't work good to me. Like, God, how does it think they could possibly idiots. get away with this? Is the real question. I always cite. What about this makes them think that hey, this is gonna work? From now on, I'm going to cite this. When people tell me the government is doing some sort of deep state conspiracy and say, motherfucker, they couldn't do this. This should have been easy. Come on, this yeah. isn't that hard. Fuck. Anyway, I'm getting upset. I can tell. <laughs> my energy. Anyway, uh, they that ah, jeez. So they found Hunt being one of like he was a consultant basically. That was something that was interesting. Sure. Was a consultant for who and what was he doing? And they had some kind of connection to this, right? Because Hunt was sort of just a name in a notebook. For all he knows, these could have just been a bunch of fucking people and it didn't matter. But you know his name be connected. They could have been consulting Howard Hunt about opening up a five gas restaurant in uh, for Miami. For sure, for sure, all about it. And that was sort of the thing that they were concerned about. I I've just realized something uh, here is that the red light is actually throwing off my red handwriting in my pen. 
on my notebook. So you may need to go turn the light on because I literally can't read it. <laughs> anyway, I'll continue though. I will continue. So it became apparent from that point that their work, or from their work, of a guy was named Colson. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> ah, I can't see. What was the guy's name? <laughs> Sorry. So it became apparent, though, that as they started to find out about Hunt, they started to make some other connections as to who Hunt worked for. Hunt worked for a guy named Colson. And Colson's role was basically to the president's re-election committee. Pause it for a second. When you say the name Colson, all I can think about is the guy from Marvel, like Agent Colson. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, basically, that's kind of it. And so by sort of creating and in, in, in conjecturing a little bit, because some of this is like you're basically piecing like disparate information related to a similar topic into some kind of fucking like similar strategy. It was a little hard. Sure. But they figured that Hunt's position had to be related to Colson, who was related to the president's re-election committee. Again, like there's still some doubt that this is a huge conspiracy. This could just be one dude going off the handle. And they figured out that what Hunt was doing was based on what Colson had been hired to do for the president's committee. So shortly following the introduction of Colson into the – well, it's just an investigation, but really it was the reporting yeah, investigation. Sure. This is not like before any sort of grand jury or Senate hearing. Bernstein contacted a young woman who had worked for Colson at the White House. Okay. And well, this was – because Colson had – at that point in time, what we know is that Colson was not – initially or he was initially employed at the white house but when 72 rolled around he basically left his position to go work for the re-election committee so he kind of he kind of like said uh i'm gonna resign but not in a bad way so i can do this um but basically during their conversation this was kind of big was that the woman revealed that hunt was often working at the white house or traveling to florida or california uh now florida is important because obviously the five guys came from there but california was interesting because that was sort of richard nixon's original state that he represented and that was where he lived in his off time sure so again that was not connecting that totally at the time but that is something to know uh one of the more unusual things though was that she said that or what she told bernstein was that in the office where she worked there was a book about the chappaquiddick incident of 1969 that was sitting on the desk God, really? Oh, that... for real. No, that plays a huge role in what kind of broke this case a little bit into what was going on. Chappaquiddick. Chappaquiddick. For anybody who doesn't know what Chappaquiddick is, do you want to describe it real quick? So essentially, that is the scandal in uh, just which, which Kennedy child was that? Teddy Kennedy. So Ted Kennedy at that time was trying to gear up for a potential presidential run. Boy, uh, they're fucking unlucky, I'll tell and you. And they had like a party at this place i believe it's in massachusetts was it yeah uh, chappaquiddick was in maine I it's think. in maine okay well they they had like this like resort place rented out like in chappaquiddick and the whole thing they had like a whole party a bunch of people were invited and allegedly the basically all we really know is that ted kennedy left the party with a girl and he did not come back with her in the morning they find a body in the water and Ted Kennedy somehow gets off and does not get charged with the crime. And there's some calls that there was maybe some corruption situation going on there with that. Yeah, so Chappaquiddick is a definitely pretty fucked up in its own regard. We may need to, if we ever want to talk about it, we definitely could. We definitely could, yeah. And it might be an interesting talk. But um, basically why Chappaquiddick has become kind of important to this is the fact that in 1969, although that was after the presidential election that Nixon won the first time around... Like, the Kennedys were still a fucking big deal in politics. Like, even though Robert had died in 68, and, you know, John had been killed in 63, I mean, that was a political dynasty. That was like the Roosevelt's, yep. for fuck's sake. Like, that that was a big group. And, and Nixon, 
who, as we talked about before, was a fairly paranoid motherfucker, tended yeah. to think if you were going to take it away from him, he was going to win at all costs, no matter what he had to do. So, fairly paranoid is a very lightweight. Oh, I mean, I don't want to try to besmirch him for some of the positives he did, but some of the positives definitely are underweighed by the negatives. So when she asked, though, when, when she asked about the book, Hunt and Fortender, that he was doing investigative work on the case, which was weird because th- she didn't know what Hunt did. She was just the secretary. Right. You're not going to be told everything, obviously, especially yeah. in politics. And Bernstein then was contacted – or, uh, sorry, Bernstein then kind of contacted the White House Library because it turned out that the book had come from there. Sure. So he contacts the library, and it results in a really fucking confusing dead-end situation here. I think bizarre. Like, I'll try to describe this in a way that makes sense. Okay. Is they, <clears throat> It was a confusing dead-end where he told, was told that Hunt had not checked out any materials on the subject. And basically there was this back and forth saying, sorry, I can't give you it. Sorry, I can't give you it. He goes, but, right. you, but he did check it out. Uh, we have no record of Mr. Hunt working there. Basically throwing into consideration the fact that the lady was lying or the librarian's lying. And then he kind of was just like, not hung up on, but then he kind of just was like, okay, bye. And so what happened was he then passed that off to Woodward, who was in the desk next to him, basically saying, hey, call the library and and ask to see if I called them back, just to see what was going on. It was a test. So Woodward calls them, or sorry, before that actually, she'd also said that she'd never heard Hunt's name before. Okay. After she kind of hinted that she did, she then she yeah, it was, yeah. she got a little sketchy. Yeah. And basically what happens is Woodward cross-checked about like uh, maybe 10 minutes later just to give him some time to sort of down and forget the phone call. He called back and was told that the phone call between her and the reporter never happened. Oh. That was pretty weird. He didn't – like he just was like, hey, I'm working for the Post and I heard such and such just called you and I'd like to follow up with this. She goes, oh, that person never called me. And it was bizarre. Like, it was, like, the most bizarre thing ever. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, why the fuck would you be lying? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So, in the Post's own library that they sort of had on station, which was pretty cool, they also had a library in the building, uh, Barry Sussman, who was the city editor, located clippings from February of 1971, where Colson is referred to as one of the, quote, original backroom boys. Back streets, back. All right. I keep thinking of some sort of <laughs> sex reference, and I don't know why. It's Keith, the original backroom boy. A backroom boy. boy. That does sound kind of scandalous. Yeah, and, a little bit. In a way that... Basically, uh, the brokers, the guys who fix things when they break down and do the dirty work when it's necessary. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. And so, following the conversation with the White House librarians, Bernstein called up a former Nixon official to discuss Howard Hunt. I made that sound like I was about to cry, and I'm not. Uh, the official stated that Hunt's interest in Chappaquiddick stemmed from an overbearing obsession from the president, chief of staff, Haldeman, and Colson about obtaining the information that could have damaged a possible Kennedy candidacy. Because basically it was like, if Kennedy, if Teddy Kennedy decided to run, trying to salvage whatever was left over from his family's political fortunes, Nixon was going to shoot him, <laughs> literally with words, but not literally. With that particular situation. Right. This information basically led Woodward Bernstein to conclude that Hunt was not an ordinary consultant but a political operative. Basically saying, like, okay, this guy's not who he says he is and he's not doing what he says he's doing. One of the things that is interesting is that while we didn't know that – well, they didn't know this at the time, people in Nixon's inner circle referred to guys like Colson as quote-unquote plumbers whose sole job was to stop leaks coming (laughs) from the White House and going to the press. Plumbers. Plumbers. 
plumbers. It's actually a fairly interesting name. It makes sense. It is interesting. That kind of stemmed, though, from the fact that the Pentagon Papers, I think it was in 71, where basically, like, the New York Times was able to get a hold of and release Department of Defense documents outlining why the fuck they've been fighting in Vietnam since 65? Uh, Not even then? A little bit earlier? Vietnam such a shit show. Oh, man, it was a real shit show. It was basically, like, in a weird way, it was, like, us, like, committing... Cold War, like, we have to do this against communists, while the French were like, all right, goodbye, basically. It yeah. was just like, okay, you bunch of fuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Why are you run away then? <laughs> anyway, um, so that next Wednesday, uh, Bernstein called another former Nixon official to confirm some biographic information that was given, and was given the following response. He was trying to sort of check in, like, who Colson and Hunt were, and, yeah. and shit like that. And the guy says... Whoever was responsible, quote, would have been somebody who didn't know about politics but thought he did. I suppose that's why Colson's name comes up. Anybody who knew anything wouldn't be looking for, or wouldn't be looking over there, meaning Watergate, for real political information. They'd be looking for some, they'd be looking for something else, scandal or gossip. So it kind of basically said like, in a way, he was both, like, confirming and denying. It was like... Right. What they were looking for was maybe not saying that they were totally looking for a political thing, but that they were trying to fish for information, right? To sort of get, like, what can we get on you? Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, basically, one of the weird things was when he was continued talking to him here. And there was another consultant. He kind of got off the phone, called another guy, and said further attempts from Bernstein to make a... F- made to figure out if the White House fully knew about the break-in got this response. And one consultant said, quote, always talk... And it said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm fucking myself up. Or that... It wasn't... Fuck me. Sorry. I, I, there's been a lot of work in my brain. Anyway. Don't you patronize me. <laughs> Sorry, it's not, it's not another consultant. It's the same consultant. I misread the okay. uh, So he basically said one consultant was, quote, always talking about walkie-talkies. You could talk about politics, and he would talk about devices. There was a great preoccupation with all this intelligence nonsense. And he further stated that some, quote, or sorry, that, quote, some of those people are dumb enough to think that there would be something at the Watergate. This was not an operation run by geniuses, is what we're getting at. Uh. Well, again, if you're going to do it, why the fuck would you talk about it in the office? Why? Because people are stupid. Kid. What the fuck? And I feel so bad. It's like current political scandals, at least there's some air of like, fuck, where the emails go? I'm not talking about Hillary Clinton. I'm talking about Donald Trump. What did you talk about in Trump Tower? What did you talk about, Don Jr.? The people want to know. Or how about all the things we still don't know about the Ukrainian thing? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. All of the things that we never will know. Unfortunately, but uh, well, I'll take solace if he loses. They'll probably jail him for tax fraud. Anyway, um, it basically was like saying, like these guys were idiots. Watergate was not worth their time. Well, why the fuck were they doing it? The statement basically affirmed though that the burglary was openly discussed amongst White House staff, or at least amongst creep staff, which is like basically saying if this guy's talking about it, someone else needs to fucking know. Yeah. Basically widening the scope, right? You're yeah. talking, you're starting narrow and getting bigger and bigger. Yep. So around that afternoon, the post-national political reporter and columnist David Broder provided Bernstein with another official to talk to. Basically, when he asked the official, or when asked, the official stated, quote, the truth is McCord 
has never done any or sorry yeah it was McCord who was one of the burglaries sure because they were now working on the other guys too they, they yeah. had Han they had Coulson was that McCord had never done any security work of any kind for the convention basically saying like the CRP or the CREEP they, he didn't do any work for the Republican National Convention okay alright which was weird because that came unannounced that guy just brought that up without being asked he didn't do it Basically, like people just randomly say, like, yeah, I think I remember seeing him. Wait, I didn't do anything at Watergate. It's like, what? We didn't ask about Watergate. That's uh, like, why? That's why a short miscalculation. Why is that so fucking open? Anyway, uh, when Bernstein asked about whether Mitchell or Mitchell basically being sort of like the former AG and was the guy who was in charge of sure. Creep, who was the director. Actually, I should probably have the book next to me so I can just look at the fucking names and their positions. Uh, basically, he was told, or was knowing about the break, or whether he asked whether Mitchell knew about the break-in. One of the sources said that, quote, Bob Dole and I Bob were, were talking and agreed it must be one of those 25 cent, <clears throat> there's a lot of shit here, uh, generals hanging around the White House and the committee was responsible. Or, and the committee that was responsible. So basically, like, people in the Republican Party were like, yeah, it's probably one of these fuckers who hangs around the Nixon Night White House. <laughs> basically, like, saying, like, there was indignation in his voice. Like, he was pissed. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway. So, moving forward a little bit, uh, fast forward to around June 22nd, 1972, and that afternoon, Nixon made his first public comment on the break-ins as of June 17th. Uh, within an hour, the president's statement was... Or sorry, within an hour of the president's statement, Devin L. Shumway, who was the public relations director for the CRP, informed reporters that, quote, or not, Jesus Christ, that John Mitchell had ordered an in-house investigation of the break-in, right? Because okay. Mitchell was still in charge of the CRP. He did have some political, you know, power. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, it was them, when you think about it from the Nixon's perspective, it was them trying to basically say, like, maybe Nixon didn't know and he just, in good faith, ordered it. Or maybe Mitchell decided to take it upon himself to make it look like he wasn't actually involved. Uh, on July 1st, nine days after the president's statement, Mitchell resigned as manager of Nixon's campaign. That's a great sign. Yeah. Explaining that his wife insisted that he quit. That was his official statement. Woodward asked several members of the Post national staff about the resignation and got the answer from the Post metropolitan editor Harry Rosenfeld. That, quote, a man like John Mitchell doesn't give up all that power for his wife. Rosenfeld had followed and knew Mitchell fairly closely. Right. Mitchell did not give this up for his fucking wife. Basically was what he was saying. There had to be something else going on. Well, I'm sure John Mitchell's wife was a lovely woman. Actually, she was pretty nice when he talked to her. She was a good person. This guy's just a fucking dick. This this guy's a real, he's a real fucking winner. Uh, around this time, Hunt was noted to have gone missing, which is never good. Oh, okay. Okay, he just decided to, because these guys really aren't, weren't under arrest arrest. Hunt was just in the notebook. He hadn't even been picked up yet. Like, he, that wouldn't happen until, like, the late 72, early 73. Hunt was just going to try to scout out new locations for the restaurant, man. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, the problem was that he just kind of disappeared off the radar. That's kind of a problem, because if the FBI wants to know, they got to go find him. Uh, Good job, FBI. They've been missing for a while, a short <laughs> while, a hot minute, if you will. <laughs> and between that earlier phone call uh, that had been placed between him and Woodward, where at one point in time, 
he kind of was like, hey, we heard that your name was in the notebook, and apparently in, in the story that happened was that he literally said, oh my god, and then slammed the receiver down. Uh, and that was it. <laughs> they didn't talk oh to him after god. that. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, so the FBI decided to dispatch about 158 and just go get his ass. They got him. <laughs> He's at his house. <laughs> they just like, it's just like I just like to think of it like um like uh that that skit in Family Guy when they're driving and Stewie's trying to see his uh his dad he thinks and they just throw all of the fruit cart vendors out like we have a crash on 57 and 8 and then people come streaming out of like buildings <laughs> gonna go get him. But uh, what was weird about that was that following Hunt's arrest, Bernstein contacted a Washington lawyer in contact with Hunt's attorney, William Bittman. So according to what he said, Bittman revealed that he had received approximately $25,000 in a brown envelope to take Hunt's case. Just was given to him. There was no address. It was just that in a note that said, take this. $25,000? Twenty-five grand's a lot, man, especially in 72. That's a lot of money in 1972. The same attorney also stated that there was about $100,000 in Creep's budget earmarked for, quote, convention security. And that the money, and basically said the money is key to the whole thing. Because this guy had to know, because they're all kind of within the same communications group. This fly is pissing me off. Um, So, yeah, that was interesting. This is kind of where you start seeing them start to follow the money angle. And on July 22nd. I think it was still the same day, but I want to make sure. There's a lot of notes going on here. July, no, okay, right there. I was thinking June 22nd. So on July 22nd, the Long Island, uh, yeah, the Long Island Afternoon Paper Newsday reported that G. Gordon Liddy, who was a partic- was now a participant in the break-in because there had been some deposition in between. So I, it was kind of hard because there was like four or five separate storylines running at the same time. Sure. So I'm filling it in as best I can. I, I can't do full justice because we'd literally be doing maybe two, maybe three separate episodes just on this alone. Right. We might have to do two just for this, depending on how far in the tooth is good. Not that I wanted to, but um, we'll try to make it as, as snappy as possible. Uh, it was a participant in the break-in and a lawyer for Nixon's campaign. That had kind of come out through the five guys. They were like, hey, besides your wonderful burgers... Who else was involved in that <laughs> sketch-ass fucking thing that you did? <laughs> and it was like, yeah, well, Liddy was one of these guys. And it it, it was uh, Hunt, too, because I think Hunt was one of the guys who was part of it. And later, Hunt went to form his own ketchup brand. For Hunt's sure. Ketchup. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out all these people are involved in political espionage. They're just part of their own food brands now. Where's Ray A. Kroc? I want to know that story. What's Ray A. Kroc doing right now? And currently, he's, like, standing over, like, <laughs> Ted Kennedy's... Like, girlfriend with a knife saying, they'll never know. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that's right, McDonald's, come get me. Anyway, Ronald McDonald shows up at my house. <laughs> you guys haven't used that fucking... I was gonna say... You guys, I haven't went to McDonald's in the... Oh, I was, gonna, I was gonna admit, but when you guys... You guys, when you worked there, were done using that mascot, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think I saw him, like, once or twice over the course of me working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just some sad guy came and like, oh, look at my shoes! Ah... <laughs> uh. Yeah. Anyway, um, so he had been fired by Director Mitchell prior to Mitchell's um, fucking resignation for refusing to answer FBI questions about Watergate. Uh, a few days later, Bernstein placed a call to the Miami DA to inquire about the $100,000 from the campaign committee because... Basically, he was saying, well, if the guys were from Miami, Miami's doing its own separate investigation. we got to figure out what's going on down there. 
So, in conversation, Bernstein was informed that the money had moved to Watergate burglar Bernard Barker's account in Miami on April 20th of 1972. So, about, about a month before the break-in. When Bernstein inquired the fact, though, of the money's origins, he was told that it had come from a businessman slash lawyer in Mexico City, a guy named Manuel Ogario Daguerne. I think it's the last name. Which was weird, because, like, what, what does this guy have to do with it? Yeah. What does this guy have to do? Well, it's actually pretty interesting. So, on the 31st, Bernstein chartered a flight down to Miami in order to look at the evidence. So, in Miami, Bernstein learned that there was a series of Mexican checks that were drawn using the creep money. And each was drawn from different American banks. And they were endorsed with an illegible signature, which they assumed was Daguerre's. Again, I don't know if that's his name. Name. Four separate banks... With an unreadable signature, which is kind of weird, right? This is kind of sus. Yeah. I use that on ironically, so. <laughs> so it was like an additional check, too, for like 25 grand dated April 10th that was drawn on the first bank and trust company of Boca Raton, Florida. Payable to the order of Kenneth H. Dahlberg, which was Creep's Midwest finance chairman for that campaign. The overall money trailed showed that, quote, the $25,000 had been deposited on April 20th alongside the four Mexican checks, totaling a deposit of $114,000. Four days later, Barker had withdrawn the $25,000. Which is kind of weird because the $25,000 was the one that showed up on that guy's lap. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so when Dahlberg's name reached Woodward in D.C., he decided to call him, and he gave the response to him, quote, I'm a proper citizen, and what I do is proper. What? Why the fuck would you answer like that? It's so weird. Why would you, uh, oh, man, it's, uh, it's just, God, these people are fucking stupid. It makes me mad. It's like the worst conspiracy to commit a crime I've ever heard in my oh, life. Oh, man, this thing was not well run. <laughs> Holy shit. So the resulting story from Bernstein's Miami trip and Woodward's research in Washington was basically stating bugs, or they quoted, bug suspect got campaign funds, and that was written around about August 1st, 1972, but that was when it had to be cleared a little bit, and that, that well had kind of run dry. This was still happening in, in July, about. But it reported that the check before ending up in Barker's pocket was given to Marie Stance, who was former Commerce Secretary of Nixon's Chief Fund and Nixon's Chief Fundraiser. And this was basically the first time that the Post had linked the burglary to like former White House officials and the reelection committee because at this point in time people were still running on the fact that this was like, well, this had nothing to do with it. This had nothing to do with the president, right? But they're slowly building the steps. Right. So the release of the or after around the what the fuck? Uh, okay, no, I, I threw myself up a little bit. Uh, one of the things, too, that was pointed out was that uh, Bernstein came back. There, he would go back again a little bit later. Sorry, my my, uh, my own research was throwing me off. So, they started to release sort of information about the fact that, well, the break-in had other things that had to be going on. And they had found out at that point in time that there was bugging equipment that had been installed in the White, or not the White House, in the, uh, in the DNC headquarters of Watergate. And that story came out, Woodward decided to contact Philip S. Hughes, who was director of the newly created Federal Elections Division of the General Accounting Office. Basically, they're just, they just, like, they audit people. Okay. 
Uh, Woodward communicated back and forth with GAO investigators every day as the audit progressed and was given terms like slush fund, rat's nest, basically saying like the amount of money that had come through that was on those checks and where it came from, this like large amounts of cash. Right. Yeah. And Woodward basically sort of found out that G. Gordon Liddy oversaw the fund and provided Barker the money for the break-in. He started placing it together a little bit later, but that's what he found out, was that Liddy oversaw that fund that provided Barker the money for the, the thing. So basically, Liddy was one of those people and was like, okay, well, you're definitely involved now. Maybe, but we don't yeah. fucking know because half of y'all are dumb as hell. So with Woodward's findings in hand, Bernstein called his regular White House contact and asked about Liddy's supervision and informed the reporter or about Liddy's supervision. And basically that guy informed the reporter that the inside plan was to let Liddy be the fall guy. Which is sure. weird because it ideally when you have a fall guy or a scapegoat, that means there are people further up the ladder who've decided to fuck something up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So surely enough, or sure enough, for a few days later, Clark McGregor, Creep campaign director, met with a small group of reporters and said that Liddy, quote, spent campaign funds on his own initiative for the purpose of determining what to do if the crazies made an attack on the president. <laughs> Basically meaning he was talking about hippies. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, I love it. I love it. God. I don't love it. Oh, Fuck this off. time period, man. This is great, man. As a person began to ask, McGregor's opinion on the development. And what was weird was that McGregor or this he did this phone call a little bit later after that. And McGregor got pissed at him basically in the phone call and threatened to terminate their relationship between the Post and the White House. And what was weird was that McGregor was known to be a really friendly dude to the press. He usually didn't blow up like this. Which is weird. Because it's sort of like a canary in a coal mine, right, in some weird way, because it's like saying, Okay, well why are you acting so fucking suspicious? Yeah, and why would you outwardly just start acting that I mean, it was weird because it was like, you know, I mean, and again, in the book, it doesn't fully talk about every word that they said because there's just too much information, but it's like, it was just bizarre. Just in case you're wondering, our theory on Five Guys could be correct, established in 1986. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm not kidding. Five Guys, who are the people? Just look at them, they're all pictures of the Watergate Five. Oh my fucking God! (laughs) How do they know?! Actually, I think all five of those guys are still alive, I think. The five guys guys? I'm pretty sure. Um, not not the five guys guys, but the Watergate, the Watergate five. guys. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, moving forward, August 22nd, 1972, the second day of the Republican convention, the GAO released the audit findings. And according to that audit, they basically said that Creep had mishandled more than $500,000 of campaign funds. That's, that's, fucking, uh, that's a fucking load. A couple dollars. That's a couple. That's a that's a couple skalosh right there, according to whatever skalosh. I don't know. That's not a real word. I think I made that up. <laughs> Shalol or so, something like that. Someone, means, someone, please tell us what that actually means. I, I don't know. I think I had a stroke. <laughs> I just like, oh, that's a couple. <laughs> <laughs> that's a couple from your drawer. Anyway, did you just lose control of your lips? Yes. What was that? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> oh Jesus! Oh, uh, basically, so the five hundred thousand dollars was not a drop in the bucket, even though that might be like ah, you mean talking There's about a millions? Hole in the bucket. Oh fuck you off, man! Dear Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! Uh, they, what was weird too was that about a hundred thousand dollars was put into what was considered to be an illegal security fund. 
That was the campaign. That was convention security fund because that fund was not properly reported. That's what made it illegal. So that night, the RNC in Miami, Nixon was nominated by the party for a second term. Good old tricky dick. Why the fuck would you do that? Well, what's bizarre... That's great, man. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, and that... To a point. To a point. But this... Around this time is when we start getting from the fuckload of shit in my... Nope. Hold up. Try and find it. Nope. Nope. There we go. Is where we start. All right, here we go. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we got here, Jake. Fucking shit. Okay. Oh, he, he, he good? <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep my pages together. <laughs> you know what? I went for the full like I'm gonna do it in the notebook because I had to do it in the notebook and I have made a monster. I've created a fucking monster. <laughs> and that basically was it. We are now introduced to our shadowy inner contact. It was around this time that as both reporters were pursuing the widening story of Watergate, that Woodward began relying on an unidentified source from I know, within I the know, White House. I know who's about to come in here. Oh, yeah. This source, known only by an alias, was able for the duration of the investigation to assist Woodward in particular, because Bernstein didn't have contact with him, right. with confirming or denying information that Woodward and Bernstein would pick up from other sources at the CRP or the White House. Perhaps more importantly, this source was also would also tell them what leads to pursue. That's indispensable because if you can get a guy on the inside to tell them what's going on, you would be in much better position. So Woodward agreed to keep the source's identity confidential, referring only to him by the alias Deep Throat. In reference to the popular pornographic film, which if anybody wants to know the uh, a, uh, plot point of that movie, yeah, I'll let you figure it out on your own. <laughs> <laughs> the usual so basically how it worked was this the usual process for meeting with deep throat <laughs> <laughs> no, I broke are you, are you, are you gonna I'm sorry this, uh, fucking... fuck <laughs> people are like that's not funny fuck off it's Pursuing funny to me deep man I have five hours of sleep over the, pa- over the span of about a week and a half doing this so fuck <laughs> off anyway um, the usual process for meeting with deep throat was almost never by phone uh, accordingly or sorry, according to Woodward's account in All the President's Men, if he decided that he needed an additional information on a lead, or you just needed to talk to him about something, like saying, like, what is this all about? Woodward would basically take, like, a red cloth rag that was kind of, like, stuffed in a flower pot on the balcony of his apartment, and he would then move the flag to the rear of the balcony. So Deep Throat would ideally walk by his apartment, wherever it was, and check to see if the flag had been moved. If it was... Then he and Woodward would meet in a pre-designated underground parking garage around 2 a.m. Usually it was in the early morning hours. Woodward would leave his sixth-floor apartment and walk down the back stairs into an alleyway. The whole point of this was basically, especially later on, to assure that they were not followed. Right. Because the, what would what, what Deep, Thro- Deep Throat knew was very damaging to the White House and was very damaging to the CRP. And a guy who knows this much is definitely in a dangerous situation. Yeah. Maybe not threatening his life, but, you know, there were some times when they thought it was a little sketch. Yeah. Yeah. So, usually what was weird about this, and he details it in the book, was basically saying that when um, Woodward would go, he would literally walk his way there, which from there to the parking garage was about a two-hour walk. 
Damn. But he had to get there fast. And he could maybe take a cab, and as things were going forward, he would literally take more and more elaborate routes to make sure people weren't following him because he started to get kind of paranoid. It was spreading. Understandably. But at the initial moment, it was fairly straightforward. So, Deep Throw, if Deep Throw, though, wanted to meet, which was even more of a rarity, Woodward was instructed to check page 20 of his New York Times every morning. So, if a meeting was requested, the page number would be circled, and the hands of a clock indicating the time of the rendezvous would be written in the lower corner of that page. Now, what's weird about that was that in the book, Woodward said he didn't know how Deep Throat ever got to his newspaper. But it was just his. It wasn't like they just did it on all of them, and people were like, what the fuck does this mean? So, the problem is this. Due to Deep Throat's position in the executive branch... Because he at least deferred the fact that he was in the White House and he had contact with the executive branch. The information he was privy to was extremely sensitive. Like, if you got caught with this guy, you could be looking at some serious jail time. Right. So he was... But and the thing was that he was one of the people who had informed Woodward of Hunt's involvement in Watergate in the first place. That's the guy who gave them that tip-off. And that was on June 19th. And because of this supposedly confidential information being leaked to the Washington Post, the FBI was both interested and pretty substantially pissed that there was <laughs> reporters who knew so much about an inactive investigation which had not been shared with anybody. <laughs> I shit you not, the FBI came, the FBI got real mad. It's like, uh, excuse me? What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, basically, it was what happened. It's a put- God damn it! <laughs> trying to figure out who did it. it. Brings everybody in. I'm disappointed. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed in all of listen, you. He looks as if it. Listen, I'm not angry, but I'm very disappointed. Yeah. I hope you know it. I hope. <laughs> I hope you had a good laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Guess what? Company football game has been called off because of this. Yeah. Because of this fuck up. It's because of what? One of you is fucking this up for everybody else. I hope you know that. I hope you know that's basically me when a kid's like who threw that and nobody wants to say it fine none of y'all go to recess yeah I hope you enjoy this whoever I don't it, whoever, whoever you did it I hope it's worth I hope it's worth it to you I hope it's worth oh, it. this is worth it I don't want to do this to you I want to be the good guy I want recess <laughs> I need a break from you anyway <laughs> You know? Just the FBI director fucking just becoming a princess. I want recess too. <laughs> everyone wants ice cream, but not everyone can have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I may have broken myself. <laughs> uh, I think this is definitely gonna be a two part. I'm okay with that to be honest. I mean, well, you uh, how to... much longer you want? How much farther you want to get in this part? I want to get at least to. That's a good spot to pause our craziness. Oh, my good God. That's a good question. You kept talking about recess. and we just kind of threw... Now you're just thinking about recess. I think what we'll do is we'll finish up... I have something called Notes on Political Spying and Sabotage. We'll finish up there. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. So... Deep Throat was actually one of the people, too, that as the investigation went on, they were warning them about using their phones because essentially he was saying, y'all are being listened to, so don't use your telephones for much of anything. Which they probably were being listened to. Yeah. It's the, the, the massively insane part about this is the level of care that was allegedly put into this, but yet just the amount of actual fuck-ups that happened 
just trying to do anything productive, so to speak. Basically, this is what happens, like, it, to take a last podcast reference, but in a weird way, it's basically like saying, like, if you were really planning on, like, stealing the Mona Lisa, but you used the hot dog squad to do it. Like, I don't yeah. get it. I don't fucking get how the hell you plan to manage to pull this off with a bunch of people who didn't know their ass from their elbow. So, I mean, and one of the things was, too, like, the day after some of the initial indictments that would come a little bit later against the burglars that was that were held, Woodward would contact Deep Throat, and in their discussion, Woodward was one of, was able to affirm information from him and the grief sources that Murray stands was one of the people, too, had been in charge of money that had financed the Watergate bugging, and that John Mitchell's aides were part of the group that controlled it. Now, I didn't directly state that John Mitchell knew, but, like, this was how much he, he was able to give them. Right? And that enough, was not right. always direct, right? But right. a lot of the times, what would happen would be that he would basically kind of dance around the answer while not giving it. He was giving it. Well, what do you think? Do you think he's involved or not? I don't know. Basically. Yeah. In a weird way. I mean, one of the things, too, was that there were later information that Deep Throat would give about, you know, certain things like like wiretapping logs and shit like that. I mean, that would come a little bit later, but that definitely would be pretty serious, you know, pushes for both the Washington Post and everybody else who was reporting on the story. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a big deal. Okay, here we go. All right. So, basically, we return back to the money angle, though. Uh, is it, and the reason for the Mexican checks, because Bernstein was rolling this over in the head, going like, what the fuck do the checks do with the story? And the next step for Bernstein was to place a call back to the Miami prosecutor about this angle. What he found of basically was this. The checks basically were part of a money laundering campaign that was established by Maurice Stance, the CRP finance chair. I'm going to reference because there's a lot of shit that comes on. People sometimes get lost. Who had embarked on a shoddy, or not on a shoddy, on a shady fundraising campaign across the Southwest. So Texas and all those other states. Arizona, which is a big one, I know. And basically, to sort of secure extra money because there were the new campaigns, campaign finance law coming in pretty soon that was going to make corporate donations pretty much illegal. God, don't you wish that that was, like, still a thing? I, yeah. Because corporations now, thanks to Citizens United, can just call themselves... Yeah, pretty much. After, after Citizens United, that basically fucked us. Citizens United is awful, and if you don't know anything about it, please go check it out. It's fucking off. If you wonder why our election, if it's you wonder why our election financing is so fucked up, you need to look no further than Citizens United, honestly. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so according to that, what was said, Stans would take a, what was effectively illegal corporate donations and send that money across the border in order to transfer it to cash by that Mexican middleman. Basically, meaning you know that this is what would happen. I know. I just you I, gave me I'm, a face like I was being a no, racist. No, I'm just amazed that this is. Happening right no, now. No, it's happening. This is, the, this, this is something that a lot of people don't know about. And so that middle guy, basically, they would change it for cash, whose records and finances couldn't be subpoenaed if there was an investigation, because he was a foreign national. The, oh, my God. Yeah. And basically, that money would go back to Washington, back to the CRP. In a way, this was literally... Okay, so what would happen would be this. Literally, what would happen in a weird way was this. The Democratic, there were Democratic and Republican donors. Right. They gave them money, and basically this was a means of like allaying their fears that since they were essentially breaking federal law, if they got found out, they wouldn't know who gave them the money. Because uh, in cash, cash is harder to trace. Yeah. Checks are not. Checks are made out, and you can tell 
who the fuck made out mm-hmm. that check? Yeah, I follow. Yeah. So, three days following August 29th in 1972, the president scheduled a press conference in San Clemente, California. Nixon's address stated that... Mm, you wish to read this, Papa Nixon? Mm-hmm. <laughs> From here to the end, right there. All right. And all that italicized stuff. <clears throat> With regard to the handling of campaign funds, we have a new law here in which technical violations have occurred and are occurring. <laughs> Apparently on both sides. When Nixon was asked about what kind of violations, he responded, I think that will come out in the balance of the week. I will let the political people talk about that. But I understand that they have been, there have been violations. I love you basically pulled the trump and said, there were bad people on both sides, both sides. Listen, what's going on is awful. It's awful on both sides. I don't, I just did the bad violations. Okay? <laughs> I did the violations. I did them. Anyway. So I don't know. I did the violations. I don't know who did the violations. So, uh, like, ah, oh, that so pisses me off. He's like, apparently on both sides. Basically saying he wasn't even sure. Apparently on both sides. Yeah. yeah. And so when the reporters asked him if he was going to pros- appoint a special prosecutor, he rejected that and disclosed that the administration's own investigation, quote, I'll do this one because it's going to be hard for you to read because there's stuff that overlaps it. Indicates that no one at the White House or on the White House staff, no one in this administration presently employed, I'm going to bring that up in a second, why he says that, (laughs) was involved in this very bizarre incident. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur, I'm starting to become like fucking Dan Rather here. <laughs> it's not oh, the fact that they occur. This is ABC News' Dan Rather. Vietnam. Anyway. <laughs> what really hurts is when you try to cover it up. <laughs> You're basically telling me that the problem is not that it happened, is when you try to cover it up. No. Which Both is, of those things are equally fucked. You can't use that logic on me. So essentially what he's saying is, the fact is the problem is not that it happened. The problem is that someone tried to cover it up in the first place. Pretty much. It's some pretty fucked logic. What the fucking... What kind of logic does that even mean? Like, it, I don't get it. See, you're not supposed to get it because it doesn't make any fucking sense. That's the point. Ah, <laughs> makes me angry, goddammit. Anyway, it's um... It's supposed to. Yeah, I know. So, while Nixon was cruising towards his re-election in the fall of 1972, Woodward and Bernstein were starting to score a string of serious leads. So, again, there was a lot of shit that happened in between, and yes, I am abridging this, basically. Well, that's... I'm trying the best okay. I can. I, I, I know there's going to be somebody who listens to this and goes, you didn't do it right the whole way through. Fine. You fucking do it, Jeeves. Do it. Jeeves. Who the fuck Jeeves. Is? I don't... Fuck. Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. It's an old right. reference. So, anyway, number that one was... an old reference. Yeah. So, anyway, number one was... Are you going to bring up Cha-Cha, the thing you can text on your phone? Cha-Cha slide? No, no, no. They used, no, they used to be a texting app. On, like, they used to be, like, a texting on your phone. This is going to date me. You can text a certain Oh, number. my God. You could, you could ask Cha-Cha, and it would send you back some sort of automated response. <laughs> it's like the it's like the fucking Microsoft paperclip of random shit. Well, I, just, I remember, like stupid ass nights where like my friends and I would like if we were having like some sort of 
sleepover where we would, where we would ask Cha-Cha a bunch of shit. I, I remember if you asked it, you could ask it, would it bury a dead body? It would give you, like, a really weird, like, answer. Like, it would be like... Man, I love the time period I grew up in. I was... I got a taste for the 90s without getting all the seriously t- bad shit like Oklahoma City and Columbine. But we were still like, the internet's a thing! <laughs> so that was Chow fun. Chow was very 90s. Yeah, it was extremely 90s. It was basically... I still had dial-up. I remember using Ooh, my... Slide, I remember the sound of I dial-up. remember using my slide-out keyboard... <laughs> I thought you were going to say phone. slide rule. I was about no, to slap your ass. I was about to slide out keyboard uh, cell phone. You know, the ones where you could slide out. It would happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it was like, yeah, because it was like the fucking Blackberries. The, the, the yeah. fucking Blackberries the government still uses to do State Department work. <laughs> See, but mine was a Samsung. Yeah, Ooh. The slide open thing is fucking nice Captain Moneybags over here. Nice color blue. Anyway. I will call it blue. Peel this motherfucker back, blue. <laughs> So anyway, uh, despite my nostalgia, here yeah. we are. <laughs> despite your fucking ramblings about whatever. So anyway, uh, number one was this. Attorney General John Mitchell like, was found to have controlled a secret fund that paid for a campaign to gather information on the Democratic Party. That came out around September 29th of 1972. So in the White House, there were calls from the Nixon administration that the five men's indictments or what, which would basically kind of come around the fact that... purposely not say five guys again? No, I... The five <laughs> guys indictments. Basically sort of meant the end of the scandal, because around right. that same time, um, there was... They had been arrested, and they had been charged, and they ideally were still kind of sitting in jail, but kind of not. So it was sort of weird, because this actually threw me off a little bit, and it was this, that in... The situation that it happened was that the guys initially were arrested and then were charged with burglary, which is itself an offense. And then they were literally put before a grand jury, charged for that, and that was their second indictment. So this was like the first indictment was them going to the court hearing that Woodward had dealt with. Right. And then going to basically like small-scale jail for a little bit. All right. Yeah. Um. Basically, the White House said that that was the end of it. Because they said, well, you got the guys. Yay! Yeah, no. No, that didn't happen. So, however, at the same time, the members of the White House were receiving access to the campaign fund. And this conversation took place with Hugh Sloan, who was the Creek treasurer, who later would, uh, wrote, he would resign and would literally become, like, one of Woodward and Bernstein's, like, serious fucking sources. Um, he disclosed the fact that John Mitchell, who was campaign director, had access to the fund, and so did four other White House officials, or former White House officials at least. Perfect. Yeah, great. So in the process of talking this loan, both Woodward and Bernstein received information that the five guys who had, or this is more five guys, this should be the five men. No, no, this should be the five men and the burglars of the five guys, later to become seven guys. But, um, that the five men who had knowledge that the funds were being used for illegal activities, Sloan figured that besides Mitchell, Maurice Stans, the Creep Finance Chairman, was involved in one of those people as well as, and he kind of, at the time being, he kind of couldn't say who the other people were. Sure. But he, again, was saying, these guys are people you need to look at. That right. Creep and former White House officials were there. Basically, was just reasserting what they were already know. A lot of a lot of it is this. It is checking, double checking, and triple checking your sources, and it's a lot of shit that they have to do. Part. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. No. No. Sorry. I was I was getting ahead of myself. You're good. So, 
And one thing extra about this is that the story about Woodward and Birdseed broaching the Mitchell connection is kind of an amazing story in and of itself. So following that revelation by a creep witness that John Mitchell was in control of that secret fund that had funded the Watergate burglars, the reporters returned to the Washington Post office and put all of their information before Benjamin C. Bradley, who was the Washington Post executive editor. He's like the guy underneath Catherine Graham who owns the Post. He's second in command. Yep. Bradley was... And this is just to give you an understanding. This is a, for me, this is a fucking amazing story. <laughs> I love hearing this because this guy's like such a fucking like he's just a rainbow of characters, of personality. And the fact was that, according to both reporters, Bradley was a fascinating individual with a quote alluring combination of aristocratic or of aristocrat and commoner, Boston Brahmin, Harvard, World War II Navy veteran, press attaché to the U.S. Embassy in Paris, police beat reporter, news magazine. <clears throat> <laughs> News magazine political reporter and the Washington Bureau Chief from Newsweek. This guy's a fucking badass. Sounds great. Yeah. So what was weird about this was upon bringing up details of Mitchell's knowledge and of involvement in the Watergate break-in, they noticed that Bradley was beginning to doodle as they were telling him. <laughs> <laughs> this is a sign that the guy was becoming, quote, a trifle impatient. <laughs> what the... Like, I love the concept. He just got bored. With it. I'm like, you gotta give me something. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a cat. It's about to go down. Oh, fuck. Here we go. <laughs> I'm drawing a dick. It's happening. Anyway. What was weird about this was that Bradley then pushed the reporters about whether or not they could push out the Mitchell story and press them about maintaining their information. This basically indicating that the circumstances they were getting into were much more serious now because the White House, or at least former White House officials, were in play. Right. They said it was kind of bizarre because it was like saying you were taking an oath. Like, you have to commit. Can you tell me emphatically that what you're telling me is absolutely true? Right. Right? Because if you don't, it's everyone's ass. Because if you get this wrong, you will be fucked. And that actually kind of almost happens a little bit later, but we won't probably get to that until maybe part two. So before the reporters would leave, Bernstein noticed that one of the most bizarre fucking things was that the executive editor had a tattoo of a rooster on his... Arm. Oh. Something okay. that no one ever knew. Instead of tattoo of a rooster on his arm, it made him just a fucking enigmatic figure. Kind of, it kind of led to an aura about him. That's why people always thought. Yep, was I fun. follow. Yeah. So, anyway, that was sort of an aside story. Could have, we could have done without it, but I thought, what the hell? I like it. Yeah. So, second thing that came out though, a part of one of the huge story changes was this: Nixon aides had run a, quote, massive campaign of political spying and sabotage on behalf of Nixon's re-election effort. That came out in print around October 10th of 1972, but obviously there's a lot of work that had to come in before that. So what we find out about this is that there's a conversation between Mitchell and Bernstein, recorded in the book All the President's Men and contains multiple interesting points of focus. So one of which is the first interesting point was when Bernstein was explaining the next story of the paper was containing details about his involvement in Watergate. And I will actually read that here. Because, yes, I'm about to do that. <laughs> One, ooh, yep. Hey, man, we're doing this. It's happening. We're doing it. Yeah. Anyway. So he brings it up and says this. So Bernstein, after identifying himself... Get me those pictures of Spider-Man. No, not quite. <laughs> it's got to be those pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> I'm sorry. Have one of those pictures of Spider-Man. 
I need Spider-Man! <laughs> just Richard Nixon's tape. That's the 15 minutes they lost in that tape recording. pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> He's just drunk as fuck. I'm like, I'm some pep for Spider-Man. Spider-Man! <laughs> so, anyway, this is yeah. how it goes. So, Bernstein, after identifying himself. Sir, I'm sorry to bother you at this hour, but we are running a story on tomorrow's paper that, in effect... That you controlled secret funds at the committee while you were attorney general? This is what Mitchell says. Jesus! You said that? What does it say? <laughs> I'll read you the first paragraph. He got as far as the third. Mitchell responds, Jesus! Every few words. <laughs> God damn it. I just love that response. Jesus. You had a lot to do with this. Jesus! Jesus is like, what the fuck? Like a fucking oil baron in Texas. How does that end? Woo, boy! How the fuck is that even a response? It's just not a good response. It's not great. No. It's really not, not great. So, um, Mitchell then said, like, what time is it? Bernstein responds, 11.30. I'm sorry to call you so late. Mitchell says, 11.30. 11.30 when? Bernstein, 11.30 at night. Mitchell goes, oh, Bernstein, the committee's issued a statement about the story, but I'd ask you for a few questions. I don't know how you didn't know what the fucking time was. You had a clock in his house. What time is it? Do you know where it is? Do you know the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man? Was that bit from fucking from Shrek? Do you know the Muffin Man? Yes, she lives on Drury Lane. She's married to the Muffin Man. The Muffin Man? The Muffin Man! Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, Bernstein goes, the committee has issued a statement about the story, but I'd like to ask you a few questions about the specifics of what the story contains. And Mitchell basically goes, did the committee tell you to go ahead and publish that story? You fellows got a great, great ball game going. As soon as you're through playing Ed Williams, which is the uh, was the principal attorney for the Washington Post, and the rest of those fellows, we're going to do a story on all of you. Sir, about the story, call my law office in the morning. And he hung up, basically. Really? Oh, my he God. He threatened them on the phone, which is not a good start. That's a great start. Not great. You're right, Jake. That's not a good start because that is, in fact, a great start. It's a great start. <laughs> uh, are you trying to transition that we're done? Not yet. No. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, that would have been great. Been, you know what's a great start? Next episode, we're going <laughs> to part two of part six of We Didn't Think This Would Go As Long As We Thought It Would. It's not Watergate's complicated. Yeah, no shit. But hey, we're going to get through this together, family. We will. I don't know if we want to do one, like, hey, and then I have, we'll talk about it later. <laughs> I, like, forgot that we were recording. <laughs> You really did think it was over, didn't you? It's over. <laughs> it's all over, everybody. He gets up and walks out, leaves his shit in the building. But Jake, we're still on it. <laughs> I did it my way. You did. You, de- you definitely did. Anyway. Yeah. So I mean, the fact was that I mean that was fucking sketchy as hell because according to Bernstein, he's like the Jesus was like sort of a primal scream, basically. Like he couldn't say it. But he's like, it was basically like saying, fuck, like that. It was yeah. basically sort of the same response. And it was like, you knew you were in trouble, but you just don't know. <laughs> like, that was the problem. You knew it, but you just didn't know it. So, anyway, so, I mean, the, that night goes forward. Yeah. He calls the law office in the morning, and here comes that second point. The second point is Bernstein's conversation with Powell Moore, who was the, or was the deputy press director for Creep and the former White House press aide. This was the response that fucking Powell gave him about why the, like, why Mitchell responded the way he did. I'm ready. So he reached... Oh, what was it? Uh, oh, sorry, I, I uh, should have this point here. Here we go. 
So basically, he called him and Seward was talking about the fact of what Mitchell said, and Moore's response was, oh. <laughs> that was it. Oh. Response was this, that Bernstein went back, waited for a few minutes, and then the phone rang, and it was Moore and Bernstein started kind of talking. Or Bernstein listened and he started writing about what Moore was telling him. Moore said, Carl, you sure you didn't catch Mr. Mitchell at a bad moment? Bernstein said he didn't know. <laughs> Hold up, it gets better. Moore goes, you called him at an unguarded moment. He, he's been a cabinet member and so forth. He doesn't want to show up in print like that. Bernstein, I just reported what he said. Because at this point in time, what was weird is that that story had already gone out. Oh, God. <laughs> it was a little hard to reel that fish back off the boat. Moore goes, if his composure is not guarded, is it fair to hold him to this accountable for what he said? Yes. <laughs> That's such a dumb shit response. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, indeed it is. I'm wondering if it's totally fair to him. He goes to bed early, you know. Did he sound sleepy? <laughs> okay. But why Mercy does that goes matter? Like this. Mercy goes like this. I couldn't tell, but I know you fellows hold me accountable for what I write, what I say, so I don't think it's un- unreasonable to expect any less from Mr. Mitchell. He's dealt with the press before. And Moore goes, Carl, I don't want anything printed that was said in a moment when the average person is not fully alert because he was awakened in the middle of the night. Bernstein goes, what time did you talk to him? Moore goes, it was a while ago, probably around nine. Carl, is it too late to get that paper, get that out of the paper? Bernstein goes, it's in there now, I think. The only way to get it out would be to talk to my editors. It was their judgment that it should be used, and I certainly concur. Basically, he had some big dick energy going on right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was just like, what the, like, what, what kind of response was that? Mitchell goes and says, like, we're going to fuck you in the ass when you're done with us. And he goes, and the AG was a little sleepy. He's not a toddler. It doesn't fucking work like that. Who, who wakes up and that's the first response? Like, I get what the get cranky, but like not like that. No, I don't get cranky and say, I'm going to fucking write an investigation about the fucking... Okay. No. We're going to investigate you. No, I'm going to investigate you. <laughs> oh, Jesus. So, basically, this kind of points out a big thing. And this is sort of... Whereas we're trailing into the end of this part of the episode, and this is sort of the final thing that we'll talk about, is that at this point in time, there was information on that political spying and sabotage, and we kind of have to talk about how they got to that conclusion, because that's a hell of a jump to make, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, indeed. This is after, uh, it was, actually, this was around September 20th in 1971. Okay. That exactly was something that came out. Uh, uh, sorry, not since 1971, 1972. Sorry. So, so what happened, Jake? No, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I, just, like, <laughs> I looked at my date and said, God damn it. <laughs> Problem is, like, when I'm writing this and I'm up so late, I just start making fucking mistakes. <laughs> not that it's, like, terrible mistakes, but it's, like, the changes in date that I gotta be careful of. So sometime following the revelation that Nixon's re-election campaign man, director John Mitchell, was in full knowledge and oversight of the secret fund that financed the Watergate break-in on September 29th of 1972. That came out on September 29th of 1972, by the way. Okay. On the night of September 28th of 1972, Woodward and Bernstein received new leads on accusations of political espionage and sabotage from the CRP. 
So during the aftermath of the Mitchell story, which had come out on the 29th, both reporters were being provided with leads relating to political illegality. Few, if any, had been legitimate up until this point. A lot of it had been weird shit they'd received, talking about, like, Kennedy assassination shit, like, all that crap, you know? People tend to throw... Typical stupid bullshit. Yeah, typical stupid bullshit. And so when Bernstein was contacted by a lawyer whose friend, quote, had been approached to go work for the Nixon campaign in a very unusual way, Bernstein was kind of like, I don't really want to fucking do this, man. But he thought, it's a lawyer, he has some more clout than the average jackass who calls me, so I'll give it a shot. Right. So the caller said that his friend, a guy by the name of Alex Shipley, was assistant AG for the state of Tennessee, and had been asked by an old army friend in 1971 to join the Nixon campaign. So according to the conversation, quote, the proposal was there to be a crew of people whose job it would be to disrupt the Democratic campaign during the primaries. The guy told Shipley, or this guy, told Shipley that there was virtually unlimited money available for that operation. <laughs> okay. Which is never good because, no. I mean, that's usually saying... Virtually that some... unlimited money. Okay. Yeah. So, when the caller wasn't able to give the name of the person... Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're fucking professionals. <laughs> this is probably why they come to listen to us, is the fact that we're so amicably, like, uncoordinated. <laughs> you blind and me baby. autistic, man. This is... Yeah, anyway. We're so good at our jobs. Yeah. So the fact was, well, hell, this is a hobby of mine, so I don't have to be great at it. <laughs> I'm aware. <laughs> Please so, proceed. Anyway. So even though the fact that, that the guy who was contacting Bernstein couldn't give the name of the person that had approached Shipley... He was able to describe an example operation the Shipley would have been a part of. So, quote, the idea was to travel around. There would be some going to towns and waiting for things to happen. Basically, like, going to places where the Democratic National Committee would travel on their campaign routes and just sort of wait. See what would happen. I found So, for instance, some guy would be waiting to see if the Democratic candidates were renting a hall to have a rally. Then his job would be to call up the owner of the hall and say the event had been rescheduled to fuck up the logistics. So Shipley in turn told this entire story while fucking drunk at a picnic to this guy who then related it to Bernstein. Jesus. The thing about this is this. This is the aura of saying, I'm going to call up Bradley Stevenson from Northwest High School, go ding dong ditch the fucking DNC headquarters. That's basically what this sounds like to me. I'm going to give you the fucking old, like, Prince Albert in a can, and that, yeah, no. But, I mean, the fact was, these were little things. These were, like, headaches, though, that right. a re-election campaign would be like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, they'd come there and the fucking <laughs> gate would be locked. Like, that's kind of a big deal. It would be a little embarrassing. But then again, that's not really a fuck up on the candidate's part. Yeah, exactly. So after getting Shipley's phone number from the caller, Bernstein returned to the Washington Post office on the 29th and showed Post Manager Editor Howard Simmons his notes and was... It was given the green light to pursue the lead. Because, again, they had to sort of, like, check it with everybody. If they said no, don't do it, don't waste your time, because, obviously, if you're going on a route that doesn't exist, you're fucking losing ground on other places. Right. From a logical standpoint, Watergate break-in and bugging made little sense, particularly because it occurred when Nixon campaign was his high point. He was better. McGovern looked like a fucking shit heel. Yeah. Not, well, maybe not that, but he definitely looked incompetent. Yeah. Given the fact, too, with the Eagleton situation that was going on with his that guy. Didn't, that was not good. That was not good, no. I mean, and the fact was that it occurred when the, or yeah, when it occurred when the Nixon campaign was at its high point. And the, however, the bugging was part of a bigger strategy. 
That had to make sense because the one on its own, this is bumfuck stupid. Why would you do it the one where there's nothing there? The bigger strategy was that there was an attempt to bug McGovern's headquarters, Hunt's, and then Hunt also had a Ted Kennedy investigation. We talked about that. McCord, who investigated the columnist Jack Anderson, who was the guy who posted the fucking Pentagon Papers, that guy fucking broke into his psychiatrist's office, didn't find anything and left. <laughs> and there were efforts to infiltrate anti-war groups. Howard Hunt's investigation, too, the leaks to the press, the plumbers. That was a bigger strategy. All of these smaller things had to add up to something, right. some sort of coordinated strategy. And so there was evidence already that something bigger might be afoot. The connection between Watergate and everything else wouldn't make more If they could get that connection, that would make more sense, right? right. And the fact was, by putting the spin that this was just one operation and a long string of other things, but mostly fuck-ups, as I found out. Lots of fuck-ups. Lots yeah. of fuck-ups. Uh, it did make more sense, right? Like, Woodward is not just a one-off shot. Like, there was some plan to this, but it just was fucking coordinated by morons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So Bernstein began considering if Watergate bugging had been scheduled before the president's re-election chances looked good. And someone forgotten to shut it down. And this theory would explain the seemingly haphazard operation method that was given. <laughs> because, yeah, if you decided to plan it when McGovern was winning earlier in the campaign and Nixon wasn't looking too hot, that would make sense. At the same time, that would also make sense as to why these guys went off and nothing fucking went right. Yeah. Then fucking we had too many doshes running the show. So shortly after Bernstein had acquired the Shipley Angle, which I love calling it that. The Shipley Angle. The Shipley Angle. <laughs> you sound like you're getting you're getting a little sleepy there, bud. No, I'm just uh, I'm getting lost in the sea of names at this point. Uh, yeah, well, like I said, I know it's a lot. It's a lot. If you need to ask questions, ask questions. I think I'm good right now. But... Okay. <laughs> so again, Ship, Shipley is basically was the AG for the Tennessee. This was the guy he had talked to that said uh, that he had been approached. He placed the phone call to Shipley, who detailed the nature of his of his approach. The deal was I was the deal was I was off the deal I was offered was slick. I also can't speak. I don't know how. I'm Marker Shipley, AG for the Tennessee State. How are you doing? Um, we'd say that we were working for so and so and the Democrats, and we really we'd be working for Nixon. Say for instance, my job would be to go to a Kennedy rally. I'd say to one of the Kennedy's people, I'm also with you. We'd want, we want you to get a job in the Muskie office. Edmund Muskie, who was the Democratic VP choice for 68. Edmund Muskie. God damn it. And when you find out anything, you let me know and we'll get it back to Kennedy. Right? The idea was he was running sort of like a double agent situation. He would infiltrate Kennedy. And Kennedy at the time, this was Robert Kennedy. It was just in 1968 was one of the plans. was basically to go to Ed Muskie's office and sort of report on what Ed Muskie was doing. Because Muskie... Was a fucking Democratic contender to Kennedy. And so as he was getting information on Kennedy and Muskie, he would literally relay that, relay that information back to Nixon. Jesus Christ. It's a fucking complicated situation. You're like, whoa, it's not so hard to research. I didn't say that. You are thinking it. No. <laughs> anyway. So, I mean, just like, it makes sense. It was run in really weird ways. And Bernstein would remember that he had heard a similar strategy used by the CIA in places outside of the United States. Now, that kind of does somewhat explain why there's so many guys with CIA contacts. Because 
This would explain part of that involvement. If those guys were in the CIA, they had to know something about this, or at least were taught by people who knew it. Bernstein had heard the strategy called, quote, mindfuck. The agency referred to it as black ops. Mindfuck. I love it being called mindfuck. I love it being called mindfuck. It's true. It, actually, there's a better name that they put to this. It's like, so should we continue? There would be as much money as needed. Expenses plus salary. The two agreed to discuss the situation further later when Shipley had gotten his info together because he kind of just called him like up and Shipley yeah. just gave him everything he kind of knew at the moment. Yeah. So Bernstein called Shipley on the evening of September 30th. Shipley defined his first contact with his recruiter as taking place on the 26th of June, 1971. Okay. One of the things, too, was that Shipley was said that should he accept the offer, he would have been promptly given a treasury job. So there was quid pro quo there, too. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, just a teensy bit. So Shipley revealed that he had contact with a guy called named Donald Segretti, who was attorney and political operative with Creep. Segretti does become somewhat more important. This was, again, like a one-off, but Segretti is sort of a running person because he was a person that they were trying for a long, long time to get information out of a little bit later. And so during a car ride between the two, Segretti offered Shipley the chance to work, quote, in an operation doing a little political espionage. Basically just saying, like, hey, you want to steal some papers? Just, like, in a really weird way. Yeah. Like, a guy that you would be told not to take candy from a van kind of situation. Just like, hey, want to steal some sweet, sweet doc- government documents? Nope. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of what he said. Shipley then detailed that Segretti outlined what he would be responsible for doing, and when he was asked who would be working for, Segretti just said Nixon. Just the fucking balls on this guy to name is the president. I don't even know if Segretti or if uh, Shipley just thought that Segretti meant the Nixon campaign or Nixon in particular, but that's not a fucking smart move. No. Because if this guy goes and talks, then he's like, hey, this guy just decided to offer me money to. <laughs> what are you gonna respond as a defense? No, he wanted me to suck his dick, and it's like that doesn't make any sense. Like, how are you gonna make that work? Like, no. So, <laughs> further conversations between Shipley and Segretti yielded little new information. Basically saying that when Shipley and Segretti began discussing the elements of these intel gathering ops, Shipley was told that everything would be taken care of. When Shipley questioned this, saying, how in hell are we going to be, how in the hell are we going to be taken care of if no one knows that something is being done? Segretti answered, Nixon knows that something is being done. It's a difficult deal. Don't tell me anything and I won't know. He literally outlined it from the start. That Nixon knew. So the problem was there was no evidence. You couldn't just throw that up there. Make it look like you were just fucking ranting. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So they kind of left Shipley behind. And Segretti was now in Woodward Bernstein's crosshairs. This guy who was working for Creep, who was a attorney and a political, poli- ah, and a political operative. That's, you know, kind of a big deal. So research and investigation found that Segretti, whose name translates to secret in Italian... <laughs> It writes itself. Because of course. This shit writes itself, man. Basically, had, quote, crisscrossed the country more than 10 times during the last half of 1971, according to his credit card records, usually staying in a city for no longer than a night or two. Again, a little suspicious, but not entirely too unsuspicious. If you work for the government, it sometimes happens. 
So Grady stopped in Miami, Houston, Manchester, New Hampshire, Knoxville, Los Angeles, Chicago, Portland, San Francisco, New York, Fresno, Tucson, Albuquerque, and Washington, D.C. Thing was, many of these cities were key political states for the 72 presidential campaign, mostly in the primary states. So it's not like he was just running in states and cities that didn't fucking matter. He had, if you're thinking from a political angle, there was a connection. So Bernstein turns his information over to fellow Washington Post reporter Myers. Uh, it just calls him Myers. There was no first name in the book. Who was stalking, or wasn't stalking, but was staking out Segretti's house in Marina del Rey in uh, California. And Myers would get a chance to talk to Segretti, actually getting inside his house when he came back. Damn near got his ass kicked trying to take a photograph of the guy. <laughs> so he pulled out, according to the story, Myers pulled out a camera and fucking Segretti chases after him through a house going, pictures aren't allowed! <laughs> Just like shit you Jesus. not the guy. And turns out all the pictures were done with his fucking like finger over the lens and he didn't get anything out of the photographs. God damn it. But he found out that Segretti lived at that house because it's what his neighbors had said. So it was kind of, it was useful, but it kind of wasn't. So Meyer's fishing expedition had been a bust, but he had come across information that Segretti who had studied and graduated from the University of Southern California, had rubbed shoulders with multiple USC grads who would go on to be officials in the Nixon White House. They were acting officials in the Nixon White House. So, you know, you have a sketchy dude who's close friends with a bunch of dudes who currently work for the White House. Like, it, it just keeps ballooning out in different areas. And the problem right. is, like, that is kind of a big deal because that is kind of sketchy. What does the CC mean? That a guy knows a guy who knows the president. They're like, yeah, they're going to ask questions. So the group involving Segretti in the White House was referred to as the, quote, USC Mafia, which had been involved in helping Nixon's re-election. How fucking white of name is that title? It sounds like a guy called Chad Thatterson, who fucking plays on the lacrosse team, and who's like, yo, Doc, we're the USC Mafia. And he's just the whitest guy with a bro tank and a backwards baseball cap for the Yankees, even though he doesn't watch baseball. Like, ah, these people fucking so white and rich hurts. So what was interesting was that all acting members of the USC Mafia were also fond to belong to a campus political party called Trojans for Representative Government. It's an interesting name, but okay. Yep. So how does this, how does this spiral back, Jake? I'm no, so... it does. It does. Okay. So the Trojans called their brand of electioneering, quote, rat fucking. And these activities included stuffing ballot boxes, planting spies in opposition, and dissemination of bogus campaign literature. So Segretti was part of a group, which a good majority of them were part of another group, who literally fucked with elections. Wow. That's, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's how it spirals back a little bit. So later, Bernstein did review that information and mentioned mentioning dirty politics, placing a phone call to a Justice Department attorney. Bernstein referred to the term rat-fucking, and the words struck a nerve of the official. Quote, you can go right to the top on that one. I was shocked when I learned about it. These are public servants? God, it's fucking nauseating. Jesus. <laughs> the thing is, he said you can go right to the top on that, which is a little weird because that further conversation with the Justice official seemed to reinforce the Post reporter's theory that the White House and Creep had engaged in alleged political sabotage and espionage. 
You already had fucking campaign finance violations with the fucking checks. And now you have fucking political espionage. That's pretty fucking sketchy. This is basically similar in a really weird way to Donald Trump asking the Russians to find the emails out of Hillary Clinton. Oh, there was nothing there, Jake. Nothing there. Uh... So, anyway, you've decided to open up a hole I'm not going to go to. Uh, so, um, are we, uh, are we pretty close to our We're getting there. Point? We're getting to the, towards the end. We're getting towards the end. You've been saying that for like the last 30 minutes. There's a lot to go through. Give me a break. I think this is a good spot to stop, Jake. Yeah, okay. Oh, we, we can do that. We can do that. So, uh, so right now we've got, we've got, uh... We're not even done with 1972. Ah, uh, got a, There's a lot year. going on. It's a good year. But, so, I, but like I said, at towards the later parts... It does get a little bit faster because obviously there's less deep level working and a little bit more like it's out in the open now, so it should make it a little bit easier. Just to recap, there's a lot of shit going on. We met Deep Throat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, things are starting to unravel a little bit. Yeah, already. But of course, it's not quite touching the White House totally. It, it's implicating them. So if you want to find out when the White House gets touched, join us <laughs> for our next Chris Hansen, your CBS Dateline, can you please sit down? <laughs> Alright, well, thanks for tuning in to Hatches Read and catch us next week. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God.